Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of Vinic of Time. This is going to be a pretty exciting one. We have an amazing guest today. Kate Stewart is with us from the Linux Foundation. We're going to cover so many topics, and she has such a, a, a huge breadth of uh, expertise, uh, both in uh, software, supply chain, and uh, a bit of material, but also in real-time uh, operating systems and how to uh, bring uh, safety and security together in a world of... Uh, embedded system. So it's going to be a lot of fun today. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to remind everybody, of course, to to subscribe to the show. If you have not uh, done so yet, uh, go to inanikoftime.tv and uh, uh, make sure you subscribe so you can get a, one email every week to tell you about the next episode coming with the, the next guest. Also, if you missed it, uh, we have launched finally the uh, Learn With Nick platform just uh, last Monday, uh, yesterday. Uh, so if you want to finally check it out, and uh, maybe try it out. Let us know also uh, your feedback and what's missing, what we could improve. Uh, we got such an amazing success in one day. Uh, so many companies, Fortune 500, uh, but also uh, individuals uh, subscribing to the platform yesterday. Uh, if you want to try it out, uh, go on the, uh, the website, learnwithnick.com. And you have two different coupon codes if you're a military or civilian in the U.S. government. Uh, make sure you use the, the coupon code uh, military. That gives you a 50% off uh, discount. And then if you're uh, just an early adopter, um, so pretty much everybody else would use the coupon code uh, let's, let's uh, beat China. Uh, and that's limited to a thousand people. Uh, and we're getting close to that. So uh, you probably want to do that now and you get 20% off uh, there. Uh, just so you know, the, the, the model is really a community. It's not just a learning platform. We're going to have a new content every week, both uh, videos and also uh, every other week. We're going to do a live Q&A session uh, with the members for two hours with me live. Uh, so you can ask questions. We have so many telcos, uh, healthcare companies, uh, financial institutions, but also uh, different uh, uh, NATO uh, nations. And uh, of course, the U.S. government agencies uh, coming and, and asking questions on how to bring uh, DevSecOps, zero, digital transformation, zero trust to the largest organizations on the planet. So we see people, uh, you know, bringing Kubernetes on uh, 5G systems at the edge when it comes to uh, telcos, all the way to what we've done in DoD on jets and bombers and space systems. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's going to be continuously updated. Uh, and more importantly, we're going to have amazing guests. Kind of think of a, of a kind of the masterclass uh, for software we're going to have a, a dear a friend of mine join and do their masterclass concept on Learn with Nick uh, with different topics like architecture and cyber and uh, uh, digital engineering and modeling and simulation. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so check it out. Let us know what you think. Uh, if your company you think would be interested in, uh, in joining, we have bulk discounts for volumes. Uh, several banks and telcos are buying you know, two, 300 seats at a time. Uh, uh, and so make sure you uh, let them know or you let me know to reach out to them to get you access if you think uh, that's easier for you to go through your company. That's definitely an option as well. All right, enough uh, uh, with that. Wanted to start uh, bringing, uh, and just so you can see maybe some of the content quickly, um, we have obviously everything from a deep dive on the technical side on GitOps and Service Mesh and Kubernetes and containers and so on, all the way to culture and acquisition. Uh, and we're going to do a deep dive uh, also on acquisition, agile acquisition, obviously. Um, but you see also, you know, 
how to make sure you're not building software in a vacuum, uh, fail fast, uh, learn fast, don't fail twice for the same reason, how to enable teams to focus on their mission software, how to properly measure uh, their DevSecOps maturity, and how to prevent uh, change management from becoming your largest bottlenecks. All these are very short and sweet uh, videos to the point uh, to get to understand all these challenges uh, with, of course, uh, tangible solutions uh, that we uh, leveraged in the Department of Defense uh, with uh, a lot of uh, large uh, teams. So hopefully that, that helps you get it done uh, in your team uh, and organization. So, all right. So, um, Kate, uh, before I bring her on the screen, you're going to see she has just such an amazing breadth of experience. Uh, we're very lucky to have her today. Uh, obviously, uh, she works with the, the safety and security and license compliance committee. So it's a pretty interesting take on the, the balance between, of course, the compliance, safety and security while innovation, while, of course, trying to innovate. Um, and so she uh, has brought uh, all these concepts with the adoption of, of Linux into the embedded uh, open source projects. She's one of the founders of something we talked about already, which is the SPDX format for software bit of material. Uh, pushed now by the Linux Foundation. Uh, and uh, she's also uh, the co-lead of the NTIA SBOM uh, formats and tooling working group that's been uh, uh, leveraged by the White House to write the uh, executive order on Zero Trust and SBOM. Uh, she, she, since she joined the Linux Foundation, she launched uh, ELISA and uh, Zephyr, uh, two projects we'll talk about today. So if you don't know about them, you're going to learn a lot. Uh, today and it's pretty amazing when she started describing it. Uh, both of those projects to me, I, I started to realize kind of the the amazing value this brings to the table for for organizations dealing with embedded systems and uh, uh, safety concerns. Uh, she has uh, 30 years of experience in in software industry, held uh, many different roles uh, both in in Canada, Australia, and the U.S. Uh, so she's been pretty much everywhere. Of course, she also managed teams uh, here in the U.S., in Canada, in the U.K., India, and China. Uh, so now, uh, without further ado, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring Kate on the screen with us so we can uh, say hi to you. Hello, thank you very much for your kind introduction. Oh, we're so excited! You know, I've, I was uh, always very eager to uh, to bring people like you on the show because it's uh, it's just uh, a breath of fresh air to to see kind of different uh, uh, backgrounds and also uh, uh, you know see what you achieved uh, for the open source community. Uh, over your career when it comes to both uh, uh, safety and real-time OS uh, uh, with Linux. And, you know, what you described to me when we prepared this uh, this episode was uh, pretty mind-boggling. So I'm pretty excited to be able to share all this uh, with uh, the, the team. In fact, you know, the first thing I always tell or ask uh, of our guests is to give us a, a rundown of your journey. So we're going to we're gonna let you do that. Sure, happy to. Um, so... I started my career after grad school in um, IBM working on optimizing compiler backends and really liked working down with the hardware and optimizing software for how we can actually get this to be efficient and effective. And that sort of set the tone for a lot of the other things I got involved in from year, you know, from year to year. And at that point in time, I was working on some of the improvements to the scheduler on the IBM Excel compilers. Um, some of these technologies made their way out to open source later years. Um, but that was sort of the start. Um, between after that, um, spent some time, oh, bringing up some of the first PowerPC chips um, in Austin. I was uh, sent down to Austin on an assignment and to, to 
to put hands on in the lab and again, doing bring up, seeing how things sort of start to come to life from the silicon and how we enable silicon was something I thought was fascinating. Um, one thing led to another and uh, I eventually ended up um, moving into Austin and working at Motorola. Um, with a, you know a, a, one, one other small you know startup in between, and um, at Motorola I was very much involved in the silicon enablement and how we bring up silicon, how we get it effective. So that sort of theme was there, and it was at Motorola I started working with um, a team. With my team, we started working on open source because we needed something that was neutral, and so we could bring up the silicon and um, do the enablement. And so we were doing BSPs for all sorts of different silicon reps. Um, and Freescale became, um, sorry, Motorola became Freescale. We spun out on the semiconductor side. And so we saw a lot of those sorts of perspectives. Um, and I did a bit of a change after that. <laughs> and so I was Ubuntu's release manager for a couple of years, um, working uh, for Canonical and uh, managing the Ubuntu distro. So that suddenly gave me a lot more visibility about the community and the power of communities, as well as how you actually make releases happen on regular cadence, on time. And um, you didn't have to worry about the silicon so much, but you had to worry about community and managing releases. Um, I was, after that, I was uh, at Lenaro and doing roadmaps for the ARM microsystem and working as a product manager there. And after that, I've been here at the Linux Foundation. And so I've been here since 2015. And um, some of the projects I'll be talking about a little bit more, uh, Zephyr and real-time Linux. Um, one of the first things I saw when I joined that, um, oh, you understand embedded, okay. And hey, we need to get this real-time Linux stuff actually upstreamed. So um, I've been working on that project pretty much since the start as well as Zephyr was um, one of the embedded OSs I started working with when I joined. When I joined. Yeah, and the uh, the embedded stuff obviously would be very exciting uh, to the audience here dealing with embedded systems and real-time OS. Having to often go to uh, you know very expensive um, commercial options, so having the ability now to uh, to go straight upstream and and get a real real time OS um, capability with Linux is is just mind boggling, and that's probably been you know, I mean I would argue one of the biggest uh, uh, piece you brought uh, to the foundation in a very short amount of time. Pretty exciting to see. Yeah, it, the embedded um, stuff sort of started actually when I was still at Motorola and we were trying to get it upstream. So I knew it was important for the embedded space to have this stuff upstream. Uh, the other piece that I, at, from the Freescale days was, you know, trying to share software bill of material information because we were putting out BSPs and we had to communicate what was actually in them. And we were having to do it for licensing compliance, but we had to actually have all the ingredients listed. And gee, what does that sound like? Kind of sounds like an S-bomb. So I've <laughs> been working on this sort of thing since like, yeah, about 2009. Wow. Um, and um, the the SPDX project is, you know, I was working on it way before I joined the LF because we kind of needed it for embedded. And then other places started seeing the need for it too. And so more and more use cases got it out over time. And since about 2015, there's been a focus on security and what we need to do for getting security. Because at the end of it, you have these components and they have relationships and you need to know exactly what you're shipping. And so yeah. that's kind of there. No, that's that's why I think we're gonna have a lot of fun today because you you got to cover a breadth of of uh, different topics that the audience really cares about. So that's gonna be a lot of fun. But first, I guess uh, you know you have a pretty unique title that I've yet to see 
anywhere, which is pretty exciting. Uh, tell us what it means to be a, a VP of Dependable Embedded Systems uh, for the Linux Foundation. Well, there's, um, I very strongly believe we need to have software be dependable, and dependable in the sense of um, reliable, maintainable. Um, security has to be there. We have to be able to take it through safety certification. We need to have software that is there, in, especially in the embedded space, because it's, sometimes it's so much harder to update and enable um, and you, make, you know, fix vulnerabilities and so forth. So um, the updates and so forth motivate us to figure out how we can get it right. And if we can't get it right, what are the effective mitigations that we should be looking at? So these pieces all have to come together. Um, and the embedded space cares about some of these things and um, has for a long time a lot more, but in maybe a less structured vibe. So, but there's been safety certifications like your autonomous driving. A lot of that is being based off of open source, a lot of containers information. There's a lot of pieces that are moving from things that were not traditionally considered embedded into the embedded space. So um, what I'm focusing on at the Linux Foundation is open source projects that are being used in the embedded space. Um, and then what we can do to make sure they adopt best practices and in some cases, we may want to try to take them through formal safety certifications, um, as well as you know adopting the best security practices. Um, you know things like having a security incident response team for an open source project when there's enough critical mass associated with it. So these are all the pieces that are getting sort of pulled together, and so we want to try to make sure that the embedded software ecosystem is dependable, and especially for the open source projects that are being contributing into it, because you know these the um, I think the estimate from embedded was Linux was in about 60% of all applications right now. And then there's places where Linux doesn't fit and we still need it to be embedded, you know, to be dependable. So trying to figure all these aspects out has been the fun challenge. Yeah, 60% is a lot and that's pretty amazing. Um, so so let's start digging into the, the subject and, you know, people uh, uh, sometimes struggle to understand what we mean by embedded systems. Can you Can you define it for us? Well, to me, um, embedded systems is a system that has some degree of resource constraints, be it power, um, be it space, memory. Generally, it may be headless, but um, like may not have a, a terminal display. It has a, some sort of fixed function. Um, but for the most part, it is, you know, there's resource constraints you have to work with. Like IoT space is pure embedded, as far as I'm concerned, for like the constrained devices. You could argue whether a cell phone is or isn't, <laughs> um, but it has fixed functionality. And so embed the embedded space is, you know, when you don't necessarily have an interface or a terminal in my mind for the most part. And do you, do you see edge? So effectively edge, most of the edge would be, I guess, anything without a terminal <laughs> would be also. Well, uh, yeah, I'd say the edge is servers that are collecting data. So I'd say that's definitely the edge. But then there's mm -hmm. all those nice little devices that are connected to it. And so, um, you know, the edge has constraints potentially about you must, you know, do a certain amount of servicing in real time across all your devices. You must collect the data. You know, so there are constraints there. Uh, there's time constraints potentially on the edge on the edge servers. On the resource constrained devices on the other side, you know, if you've got a sensor me measuring temperature, you're not going to want to spend $100 on it. You're going to want to <laughs> use a very cheap little t sensor. And you're going to want to keep it as small and cheap as possible because you may just throw it away. 
atmosphere right. or a ship with something. And so, but that sensor and the data that's coming from that sensor, it may be important to not let someone intercept it. We may yeah. need security on the encode, you know, on the communication path um, between those um, constrained devices and the edge. And so, figuring out what we can do to make sure that uh, options are there, and people have, you know, tried and tested options for how they enable these devices, especially when Linux doesn't fit, is the main part of my focus. And and do you find maybe that uh, when people are trying to save money, particularly, you know, in some of these use cases you just described. That's where you know security goes out of the window. Yeah, uh, we need to make it easy for security to be built in when people need to know it. Um, you know, a lot of stuff was being done in bare metal, um, and when you're doing in bare metal, it's hard to sort of standardize all your practices. Um, yeah. And so we want to keep so we can get to the size like a bare metal would be, but we have the ability so people can opt in to various, um, uh, you know configurations and tried and tested drivers and then you know security encodings and so forth so what we kind of are looking for is a sort of a standardized set of library um, functionality the core kernel and then libraries around it or configurations device drivers and so forth that can be put together to make so it's only what you actually need and you have it configured um, tightly and so the project zephyr i was that we were referring to earlier started with this as a goal because Linux doesn't get much smaller than two meg these days as an image. And that doesn't work in those really strong, tight, constrained, resource constrained devices for power reasons. Like, you know, you want your battery life on a small little device to last for a couple of weeks. You don't want to be setting to put it on a charge every night. Yeah. Um, you know, things like that. Um, you, you know, so there's power as a constraint. There may be, you know, hey, Size. I mean, you're going to throw away. <laughs> you yeah. don't want to have a lot of, you know, you don't want to have a big investment beyond a couple cents in it type of deal. Right. So cattle, cattle versus pets. Yeah. And then for yeah. the size of foam factor. Yeah. Yep. Yep. These are all sort of considerations. And so making it easy for people to just, you know, tick, you know, select the configs effectively and build something that's very tightly constrained and has been well tested has been something that the Zephyr project has been focusing on since it started. And so and when you when you think of security for these devices, do you do you see both the uh, I guess the hardening of the device uh, within itself, or do you also see kind of the the traffic ingress egress and the, the encryption piece and authentication X509 certificate or whatever mechanism that can be used to authenticate the device? What's what's kind of the the focus? Is it both or both? Yeah. <laughs> you need all the options here, okay? And this is why, you know, scaling up bare metal is so problematic, is because the, the landscape these days is so complex. Um, and there are so many different, you know, threat surfaces that are out there that need to be addressed. Um, you know, some care, some don't care. And then you add in the dimension that you may need to put something into critical infrastructure. So there may be safety considerations and safety use cases that have to be addressed. And so, so bringing these things together and having a framework to do the analysis effectively is one of the challenges out there. And it, commercial offerings are out there from you know various vendors that have been there for a while and they've gone through this, but we really haven't done this from an open source perspective in a large way outside of like um, some organizations. So we're trying to pilot how we can do this effectively for open source right now. Do you do you gather any kind of data at the foundation about um, you know the the the, the number of, of IoT devices being uh, being produced or maybe you know how many devices are seen 
without any security? Are you tracking kind of any kind of data coming from, uh, you know, China or other places? Obviously, a lot of it is coming from China. So I wish. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I, I had know, the results right? to do that. Um, yeah. There are there are like there's various um, analysis firms that have been doing studies along this line. And I found it absolutely fascinating that there's now more IoT devices on this planet than there are people. And we're on our way to two times the number of IoT devices to people. Yeah. And a lot of them do not necessarily, you know, it's it's not the use cases that are being put in place. The security isn't as important or they had it. The, the thing that they prioritized was time to market rather than locking things down. And these are, you know, economic trade-offs that get happening all the time. And so what we need to try to do is make it easy for security to be built in without a lot of economic add-on. So it just is, okay, turn some options on and you can get a hard, more hardened device or you can make sure that there's, you know, test suites you can be running, things like that to help with your coverage and robustness. Yeah, that makes sense. And so part of your job, I guess, is to balance, you know, safety and innovation. And, and so how do you, how do you find it? So innovation is, you know, do things quickly, fail fast, etc. Safety is okay. We're going to be at, um, we're going to do a full set of analysis on a component within a wide set of systems. And those two things are at, um, have different behaviors. A lot of open source up to date has been mostly only focused on the innovation aspect. And so bringing the whole system thinking into it and the, so and the software engineering aspects actually into this discussion is going to be key for being able to do the safety properly. Because you've got to start thinking system-wide, not just your own component-wide. And that's yeah. an interesting shift for people. So we've got a lot of, um, we're trying different things in different projects. Um, in the Zephyr project, we've got a safety committee, and that safety committee has been, in, um, you know, responsible for looking at, say, you know, putting the MISRA guidelines in, and it's going after 61508 certification for the code base, and then it's going to be having, you know, and then getting all the traceability and all the evidence marshaled so we can actually go through a certification for the kernel. Uh, the Zen community, which is a hypervisor, is trying to do something similar. Um, slightly different variants on some things that they're doing. And then the ELISA community, which is enabling Linux and safety critical applications, is taking and looking at Linux as a um, component and looking at the processes that are already there. And, you know, what can be used in the argumentation that's reliable? Because when you consider um, all the server market, 60% <laughs> of the embedded, but all the supercomputers, Every, there's a very large amount of infrastructure running Linux. In fact, I think it's in the SpaceX rockets as well as the Tesla cars. SpaceX, and, definitely for sure, yeah. Yeah, and so we know it's being used in critical applications. The challenge becomes is how do you build the confidence in the analysis that you can know that you have not overlooked something? How do you do the argumentation effectively? And so there's groups of people that are coming together um, and from various companies talk through these problems and so including like you know the, the certification bodies like you know underwriters limited as well as you know some of the ones in europe um coming together looking at the problem looking at it from various domains and standards and saying okay what's relevant what's not relevant and i'm kind of excited because we've just got a new one starting up in that group um for the aerospace industry so boeing just joined the project um and they want to start forming a group to start studying aerospace 
And so, you know, if people are interested in that area, um, by all means, feel free to reach <laughs> out to me on at least, but you know, about that you're interested. There'll be a talk um, at our next workshop, for instance, um, talking about this working group that they want to start forming to look at DO 178C and how it interacts. I'm sure a lot of people here will be interested by that because that's what we do. So that's exciting. Yeah. So it's so you know the, the innovations are happening, and it's innovation as well in the analysis. It's not just innovation in the projects, but there's a lot of wealth in open source and open source is very attractive from an innovation perspective. We just need to put the guardrails and some of the right. frames for doing the analysis around it. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. You mentioned SpaceX because that's uh, one of the video I made uh, recently uh, to compare SpaceX with F-35 um, SpaceX being able to do 17,000 build a software a day, uh, you know, effectively, like you said, running Linux upstream, on real-time OS, um, be able to not use hardware uh, specialized in uh, in the space industry vacuum. So it's really opening the, the, the use of pretty much every commercial open source uh, capabilities. They can do three hardware in the loop testing a day, uh, update software a few hours before the launch. And I guess the, the whole concept of uh, ruthless automation enables them to uh, to move faster, right? By uh, automating the... Uh, Hardware loop testing, the OTDT, and all the uh, assessment we do uh, to make sure that uh, new features on the software are not breaking things. Right. And so I think it's just a great case study to look at. And I always get uh, you know people to say, "Well, yeah, but they had so many issues, you know, and crashes and things." But uh, people don't realize that uh, none of those were were caused by software. So um, that's not really a, a valid point. Uh, their velocity has been. Uh, 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 you know, at that kind of scale because of the adoption of DevSecOps, spectrum security and automation, you know, and that's uh, mm -hmm. massively enabled by using uh, traditional uh, CPUs and uh, uh, and Linux. You know, they, the first thing they mentioned to me was the, you know, the, the fact that they use upstream Linux. That was the massive enabler for them to use every kind of tool on the planet they want to use, you know. So. It's a very robust ecosystem and, you know, it's been in development for 31 years and they've you know, figured out some processes that work. Um, and so one of the things that I was doing for the last five or six years is working with the Zephyr community to figure out what parts we can adopt from their processes. So Zephyr is not Linux, right? But we right. want to try to have things like having the maintainer hierarchy that Linux sort of pioneered, using the common infrastructure, um, looking at how you can get, um, you know, having the LTS concept where something moves fast, which is your development, but you have something you keep stable. For building products on, and so that's sort of a, a very much a clear, you know, innovation that happens in the development tree, and then you look at the you look at building products from that stable, and that's safety. And so Zephyr has an LTS cycle, the same way the Linux kernel has an LTS cycle, the same way that um, you know Yocto or distributions have LTS cycles, or for that mm -hmm. matter, Ubuntu has an LTS cycle. Um, right. It's a best practice out there um, when you're working with things that have elements of safety and security to know, hey, we're not going to keep this one at the bleeding edge. We'll keep it supported, though, for the security side. And then that gives people time to do the analysis that they want to do at system level. And you know that you brought up again Ubuntu. I, I really have to ask you, uh, during your time, you know, um, helping the team, uh, can you describe you know, your role uh, during that, that period, I think you were a release manager, right? So yeah. what does that, what does that mean for people that don't know what that, that does? Um, so my job was to make sure there are three factors when you're doing software, you can do time, 
based releases, you can do feature-based releases, um, and or you can effectively have quality aspects. And um, what Ubuntu decided to do was focus on the quality and the time. So they had a very predictable cadence, and it came out um, on a very regular basis. And it's, that still is happening today. And then every two years, one of these releases was declared in LTS and had some extra cycles of testing and support going forward. And the support period was articulated up front, so people sort of knew what they were getting into. Um, so my job when I was doing release manager was managing, okay, can we make sure we can hit that date? And making sure that the quality is high enough when we hit that date. So I was working with, you know, the desktop team, the kernel team, security team, um, lots of, you know, the zero days, et cetera. Um, and then a variety of servers, teams, and so forth. And we were trying to basically make sure the code base was co coherent and available at a quality level at the date. So new features were being added throughout the release. And then there was a solidification period. So my job was to, um, effectively project manage what was happening and then minimize the risk so that we could ship on time. So once we start getting close to the date, okay, what are the impacts of a feature? What dependencies do I have to, what dependencies might this package rely on that if there's a bug will cause us to miss the date? So I started looking a lot at the dependency trees in that period of time and did a bit of work on, you know, analyzing the seeds and so forth and figuring out some tools so we could actually sort of understand um, what was happening, which kind of nicely tied into the whole SBOM and transparency thing um, in the early days and having relationships to show that type of stuff. So. Yeah, would you argue, argue that, uh, you know, having access to uh, to an SBOM at the time would have helped you do that uh, kind of uh, dependency tree <laughs> nightmare? Yeah, yeah, like I say, when, when you ship, when you ship um, the, the distro, there's a manifest that goes with it. That just gives you the full list of elements. What it, and as they're generating it, they're going through and creating this information on dependencies. As you're doing a build uh, for pulling this distro together, you've got that information. That we didn't have a good way of, um, uh, how should I make it? say, making it transparently visible. And so one of the things that's been happening with the whole adoption of SBOMs is we're getting these organizations now looking at taking the information in their build infrastructure and then summarizing it out so that it's easier for people. And I think that's going to help. The, secure, the safety aspects as well as security aspects, because you need to understand the transparency of what you depend on and what when someone's building your package, what it may be depending on is important for the safety side as well. Yeah, no doubt. And so, um, you know, wanted to follow up on the on the balance, right, of, of safety innovation. Would you say um, if, if it would be pretty difficult to succeed at, at moving fast if you don't embrace Kind of that baked-in security versus bolted on, and, and kind of that automation aspect of you know what DevOps, DevSecOps brings to life. Is it even doable to, to get at the pace you need to move at uh, to compete without these kind of key principles? Yeah, no, you need to have security thought and thought up right up front. And like when I was at Ubuntu, there was a security team there that was basically handing all the vulnerabilities across all the packages, and um, security has to be there right from the start. When we started the Zephyr project off, the first committee we, we started when we kicked the project off was a security committee to focus on making sure we actually could do the threat modeling. And then you know that evolved into the PCERT team. Um, so security has to be there from the start if you want to get to velocity over time. Yeah, baked in, right? Not, not bolted on after Definitely. the fact. That's always, uh, 
Um, so now you talked about, you know, uh, safety and innovation, but what about uh, safety and security? How is that different? Well, um, safety has the aspect of you need to um, do a full analysis of a system. And you need the components all to be uh, secure for it to work properly. Now, the challenge becomes is what happens when you notice a vulnerability down the road after you've done your analysis? This is where there's sometimes some tension um, in the sense that does it invalidate your analysis or not? And so understanding what the, what the, what the, what the code is um, and whether or not you've, you know, is, if you're applying a bug fix, is it necessary first off? And if it is necessary, does it invalidate your analysis? Um, at this level of analysis, you need to really get down to the source file and you need to be able to traceability from the binaries all the way down to the source file. And so um, getting us to the stage where we can actually um, have for each built binary, full traceability to the exact source files that make it in is I think where we're gonna need to go for the security and true automation for security. Um, we're seeing, we've actually done this um, at the Zephyr project. Um, all you'd have to do is change a, say West SPDX, which is the build tool there, and then do your regular build and you will automatically get, you know, three S-bombs generated, two source and then one bind, you know, one build S-bomb that links back to those sources. And so that is an example of, I think, where we need to be going from a security and a safety perspective so that we can actually make the right trade-offs of, hey, um, this vulnerability affects this type of stack uh, that's built into this package. Um, am I even invoking it? Have I configured it to be included? Um, if I haven't configured it to be included, even though it's in the package version, it doesn't matter. It's not included. So we need to be able to be explicit about what's there and the transparency and the ability for the traceability down to that level is going to be key for us to get this uh, working effectively. So um, Zephyr's doing it. The other project that's embedded that's doing it is Yocto. And so Yocto's builds, um, it's a distro builder. And what it does is it will build the to cross tool chain. And then that cross tool chain will build your executable. And for the cross tool chain, uh, the recipes will generate out an SBOM for the built executable, you've got an SBOM and then you've got the relationships between all these elements. So you can understand what's really there in your supply chain. So these sorts of things are there today. And to turn that on in Yocto, it's again, one you change a line in the config file and that turns it on. And so having this stuff in the background and automatically generated is pretty much where I'm, we need to be going for the security side as well as for the um, being able to do the safety analysis properly. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you find, uh, do you find when you look at, uh, I'm sure you get to see a lot of different use cases and, and looking at different uh, projects and different teams, um, what keeps you up at night? looking at some of these do you feel like we're we're doing pretty good do you feel like uh we're still way too far behind to where you want to be in terms of that that safety uh slash security component uh, are we are we finally waking up a little bit because of the executive order is i mean i i see some movement right some progress yeah. but i would argue it's still pretty anecdotal well uh, what are you, what's your take on that so i think the transparency and the um transparency of the software you're running on the systems what keeps me up at night is, um, you know, I want to have in 10 years time, if I have a self-driving car, I want to have trust in it. 
okay? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting there, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's using AI algorithms to figure out where it needs to go and to not hurt anyone on the way and not hurt me on the way. Um, that's where safety critical comes into, right? Person, you know, it could have harm, very harm, much harm something. Yeah. And, um, you know, the keeping the AI information and the training data, um, some of those use cases, and we don't have good ways of describing it right now. Like in the SPDX project or software package exchange project, we're busy looking, there's a group of us looking at that. And so we're looking at how we summarize the data set information and how we set, summarize the trained model information um, and how we can sort of pull this stuff together so we have that visibility. Um, but getting that visibility and the transparency so we can debug problems as well as record them, as well as quite frankly, do the right level of analysis so all the artifacts can just get generated and linked. Uh, this is areas that we're you know, busy working on extending this current specifications and standards for. Uh, we took, so when the NTIA work happened, the term S-bomb really wasn't much out there. <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were using it in various other places, you know, in these places. And we, from a hardware side, we always had the concept of a bill of materials or a bomb. Um, and the software bill of materials is something that um, the Open Chain project uh, started advocating we needed to be having when we're working from one vendor to a next. And so the processes around working with software um, is what OpenShame was figuring out. And you know, one of the key lines in there, in the, it's a very short spec. It's an ISO standard as well, but it expects you there to be a bill of materials for your software. And that's what you're communicating from the licensing and compliance perspective. And funnily enough, if you've got that level of information, you can use it for the security stuff too. So having that transparency, um, is kind of key. However, there's a lot of concepts in the machine learning, in doing the builds, uh, the pedigree provenance, in um, taking you know these next steps that we don't have good ways of modeling right now, and sharing the information. And so, what the SPDX team is busy working on uh, is there's working groups in there. They're focusing on uh, the build information, the usage information. When does something go end of life? You know, when we were doing Ubuntu, we knew what the end of life was for things. Okay. Why aren't we communicating the end of life information with the software? So, you know, hey, if you're running an auto check on all your software on your system, if something's coming up for end of life, maybe you might want to do some risk analysis proactively and decide, are you going to do an update or not? Um, so, you know. Even the, really, even the release day was helpful to me because I would, I would look at... Uh, how quickly vendors are releasing, updating the dependencies. You know, too often I see people say, "Oh, you know, we have all these CVEs, but it's not in the code path, right?" That's a magical, magical term. Oh. Although no one can really verify that because you know, often we don't have access to the source code, so we don't know what's going on. And and so having the ability to to see first, okay, is there, is there some kind of hygiene when it comes to updating dependencies? Are we really stacking time, which will lead us to this end of life problem, right? Very much so. Um, you know, the hygiene aspect and understanding if it's in the code path is the reason we start to need to have the, the visibility, especially in the critical infrastructure, down to the source level. And there's the standards have always called for that. We just need to have it a way to be automated because we don't we can't scale manually. We need to have this stuff right. at our fingertips, right? Um, so keeping this stuff available and having the analysis there is mm -hmm. pretty much, I think, for us to get where we need to go at scale. And the industry is moving so fast and there's so much innovation. It's exciting. But the things that keep me up at night are, you know, okay, are we keeping the transparency up with the software? You know, what's, what's what we're depending on. And and so do you, do you see progress being made in terms of like 
at least the awareness and like the did you feel maybe also uh you know congress should start thinking about some type of of law when it comes to companies that often gets away you know they get away again and again sometimes with uh you know zero days and and tremendous levels of of cves and no one cares and is there a gap in you know some type of enforcement function that the government could do or is that the wrong answer i think what the um Biden administration did with the executive order last year was probably the most effective way, which is making it such that you can't sell to the government unless you provide an S-bomb. That has been a tremendous right. motivator for a lot of tooling to come into play, a lot of new business cases and mm -hmm. companies yeah. to come into play. And so um, being able to, so we can get this information um, there and get it consumed. You know, there's a lot of innovation happening in this space and getting that like, you know, that lingua franca, and that language mm -hmm. um, for communicating this information so the tools can consume it to do the next level of analysis um, is you know, certainly part of the challenge. Like one of the tools that just emerged um, in the last year came out from the NTIA healthcare proof of concept, where New York Presbyterian Hospital, during all the COVID stuff, their IT department basically took, created a tool to consume S-bombs and then match them up to the vulnerability database and have a dashboard. And that's now all open source. And so this is the first time they actually ever open source and participate in open source. But the fact that they did this work during that period of time and then made it available to others, small hospitals um, to use. And it's not really specific to a hospital. Any small yeah. business could go and use the dagger board stuff, set it up and monitor the software they've got with the, the S-bombs feeding. So it's kind of a management. Is that a kind of a management of S-bombs? Is that, is that what it yeah. is? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically, you know, we've got a lot of, you know, um, management systems and, you know, asset management systems and so forth and hooking these concepts of S-bombs into your asset management and knowing what's actually on your system is key. The components are certainly the first level. And, but if, you know, if you're going into the safety space, you probably want to go down another level down to the, you know, the source levels, et cetera. Right. Um, just to have that confidence and making it easy to go to whatever level is appropriate for your application, I think is part of the challenge here for us. Yeah, no doubt. In fact, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how does SBOM end up working, right, in that uh, uh, embedded space. So embedded space obviously is a little bit unique, right? You, you have uh, all the constraints we talked about and, and the hardware piece of that and, and the form factor and, and cost and, and all the good stuff. What's different when people think of SBOM specific to, to the embedded space? So I think what's different in the embed space um, is some of the challenges in the other spaces are a little bit more intense, probably. You want it so that it just happens in the background. You don't have to think about it. And you want it as a sidecar. You don't necessarily want to embed any image because you've got such resource constraints, usually for the space reasons. And so having the information there and such that anytime you just do a build and do your test runs, et cetera, once you've done your test runs, you've got your S-bomb there, you're good to release it. And when you're releasing a binary, there's always an S-bomb with it. Um, getting us to that stage in our in the wider ecosystem with the whole plethora of embedded tools and embedded um, ecosystem is a good challenge. Uh, we're like I say, we're showing a couple places that I've talked about where we've, you know, we've done, we're doing it, but there's so many more. The, 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 Open source software ecosystem is tremendously wide. And then there's a commercial which builds on top of the open source ecosystem. And so getting it so that we can get these things happening in a sort of 
standardized way in languages such that tools can consume it and keep on top of it is the challenge right now. You know, when we talk about the concept of Christmas, our Christmas presents from the security space, right? <laughs> Where we get our vulnerabilities just before Christmas. It might be kind of nice such that, you know, in a year or two's time, um, okay, we hear that there's a new vulnerability. Uh, we just basically do a query on a database and that's inside our company and know yes or no, I'm affected or not. And if I'm, if I am affected, I know exactly where. So where that, I am. Where in, where in, you know, where in the database through the Pensy trees, as well as potentially, you know, a stack that might be embedded, what I might have to do to remediate. So a lot of people suddenly would not have to spend their um, Christmas holidays going through code to double check all the pieces. <laughs> I think that's a uh, a win for all of us um, yeah. and uh, getting us to that stage where we can just make that a reality is something that, you know, a lot of us are really trying for. Absolutely. Uh, Adam was asking something that I actually have been pushing or promoting for, for many years. So I'm biased, <laughs> but uh, uh, he's asking, you know, what's your thoughts on whether uh, digital signatures should be uh, required, I'm going to say, for yeah. us bombs. So, um, inside a lot of the SBOM formats, you have hashes already for the object, so you know whether or not what you're describing has changed. And so I, I'm a, a strong believer in that. And then you have the signing of the SBOM itself. Right. And um, is that is that required? I mean, it's not required though. I, I don't see everybody no, do well, that. Well, exactly. I think it's the best practice. I think you're going to see and make it easy for people that when you sign that this SBOM is related and to this binary, and have someone attesting that these two things match together. Yeah, I think right. we're going to need to go to that. And it should state. be. A, I don't see how we get away without making it a requirement. I don't think that's a maybe. You know. Uh, well, I, <laughs> like you say, it's not always a requirement that you care about yeah. enabling some of the security features, right? It all yeah. depends on the context. So, some of the challenge here is like one of the Project Sig Store that's out of the OpenSSF group in the Linux Foundation yeah. is very much focused on making it really easy to generate these signatures. Right. And then. Figuring out these tool flows. We so use it in DoD, by the way. Okay, excellent. And figure out how these tool flows all work so that this stuff just happens automatically in the background without thinking about it. And the information is there. Um, that's where we need to go. And so, so I guess at, at the very least, you, you're, you're thinking, um, you know, knowing the provenance and, and, and not just the uh, integrity, right? But the the provenance with the, the signature is kind of what what this brings to the table is making sure uh, that it's coming from the source it's right. supposed to be coming from, right? Yeah, and it's uh, like you know um, when we were shipping out the Ubuntu images, the images were all signed. There was a signing authority that worked. I mean, you could use. You, you, could, you wouldn't see Ubuntu release without signing, right? I don't think exactly. that would be a thing. Exactly. <laughs> right. So you know, you, you really don't want to. Uh, you want to put some. You know, there's different ways of communicating the embedded information and so forth, and so. Having that sig the signatures um, is going to be very appropriate in a lot of cases. Um, so I think it, but I think there's aspects of oh, I'm just doing my little hack project. I'm not going to put a si signature on it because I'm just yeah. going to use it myself. So it's sure. uh, but the minute the minute I guess something becomes mature enough, right? I mean, uh, mm -hmm. a decent size open source project or commercial project that should be. I mean, that's just an expectation. I think it point. should be an expectation. I think it's a best practice that there's mechanisms available. Uh, certainly, anytime money changes hands or there's contracts involved, definitely it's worth <laughs> thinking about here. Um, and quite frankly, you're going to be using it as a risk analysis, right? Right, if they or don't have it. Running software, <laughs> it's a risk factor. The same way if you don't know exactly what's in your SBOM or what's in the software you're running, you don't have an SBOM, 
That's a risk. Factor. Yeah, I don't know if I would accept an S bomb on the government side if I don't see a signature. I can tell you that. I just feel well, like, then, uh, like I say, and know. so, you know, this 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 type of thing is going to motivate the change that we need to see in right. this. Make it easy for everyone. Pushing people up, you know, p pulling up the, yep, the, the the work. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so um, let's see. Um, you mentioned someone was asking because you mentioned. Uh, you know, um, generating code for security. What's your thoughts on the state of the art there? Is it still, uh, you know, barely scratching the surface or where are we on that side of the house, I guess? I guess generating for security is a rather broad term in my mind. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to, so what we're doing a lot of work is generating the S-bombs automatically and focusing on doing that. So we have that transparency, traceability of what's there. Um, and that's maturing nicely, I think, on the generation side. The consumption side still needs to have some work done. Um, in terms of the algorithms, well, I think there's more algorithms coming up every day for the secure communication channels and so forth. Um, I think we've got a fair amount there, and I think we're roughly. And it's like, you know, on the other hand, a lot of us are still using SHA-1s as opposed to SHA-256s yeah. or other things. So I think there's work to be done there. But again, it's a risk analysis that has to happen. Um, one of the things I think is really exciting is um, there's a project called um, Best Practices Badge under OpenSSF. It used to be under the Core Infrastructure Initiative. It's moved under the OpenSSF uh, Foundation right now. And what it does is it lets open source projects um, attest, publicly attest to the practices and policies they're following. And one of the things we're trying to do in some of the embedded projects I work with is making sure we get to the fact that they are um, passing and they're using good practices and hygiene. And so this having this stuff visible in public as opposed to trying to diggle through random emails to try to understand this, <laughs> I'll bring confidence. And so seeing um, one of the things we were sort of proud of with Zephyr is, well, actually this badging practices started when Zephyr started. And so as we were looking for good security things, we started looking, okay, let's go see what's happening there. And so over the year or two, first year or so, we, we actually worked our way up to a passing badge in the Zephyr project because we were focused on it. And it wasn't that hard. It was just things you have to do and thinking about it. And then they added the silver and gold level. And Zephyr actually managed to wake its way up to the gold level. And I think there's only five other ones up there. I think there's about 12 now. And the Linux, we, we, we got there before the Linux kernel did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they were closer for longer than we were, but we got up there quickly. And um, uh -huh. so the Linux kernel is there and then Zephyr is there. And, you know, because a lot of people depend on these types of codes. So having those security practices um, and are listed in there. And some of that is using things like the fuzzing tools, using the, um, you know, static analysis, um, actually understanding the, you know, where the vulnerabilities can actually come in. So, there's I would argue it's all pretty reasonable stuff. I, I don't see like crazy mm -hmm. nonsense, like some of the government contracts asking for your DNA. You know, that's pretty basic stuff, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, 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 we sort of went through it and then, you know, I was just sort of going, okay, rub them. And uh, then all of a sudden we started failing and they've been checking our web links and we had changed some of our infrastructure and it picked it up on us. And so we had to go and do our, do our updates on our, on our documented process. And we're probably due for another set of updates actually. Um, but we, you know, we, the fact that there's some cross checks there and that there's some public criteria and people can, you know, reach out and say, Hey, I don't think this is what it's doing. You know, you've got a way of saying and asserting what your policies are. Having this type of badging available mm -hmm. for open source projects, again, helps with trust 
and it helps with making sure they're following the best security practices that are known out there. Yeah. Uh, people were asking, what's the difference between OpenSSF and, and the Linux Foundation? So um, OpenSSF is a foundation. Um, the Linux Foundation, um, and it's hosted under the Linux Foundation. It has sev separate governance. So um, there's a different governing boards for each of them. And those, those governing boards control, control the fundings for each of these projects. Uh, the Linux Foundation doesn't dictate what the OpenSSF is going to do. It's that governing board that figures out where it's going to go. So what OpenSSF's mission is, is improving security across the, the open source ecosystem. Um, what Linux, does, can you can you remind people what OpenSSF stands for? for open, people source, that don't know? Open, um, open Source Security Foundation. Here we go. <laughs> that was always a good, good first step. Yeah. And um, <laughs> what they're what the you know, what the members are focused in there is improving the security across the wider ecosystem. That is this project's mission. Uh, and it's not something. just for Linux. No, it's not just for Linux. It's for all, all software. And so, you know, the tools that are being generated there to be working with open source software, there's no reason they can't be used, um, you know, with proprietary software as well. And so going through some of these checklists, going through using some of these tools, working with, you know, the scorecarding, all of this is, you know, trying to get a handle on what my risk is of using this code and what this is life cycle going to be. And then the S-bomb sort of relate into that. Um, one of the things I'm excited about personally and participating in on there is um, there's an S-bomb everywhere, a work, a special mm. interest group that's formed up and it's formed up under the tooling. And what we're trying to do is make sure we can help reduce the barriers for S-bomb adoption and making it easy for companies to take and consume and produce as well as build on these SBOM formats. So there's a group of people that are meeting in that group. Um, the other thing I'm excited about is uh, CISA is starting up um, their working groups. Um, Alan Friedman was doing a lot of the work on SBOM at NTIA and has moved to CISA now. And um, those groups are gonna be starting up as well. And that was an effective forum for collaboration, I thought, for the last few years. So, you know, Getting these consensus from the industry as to what's reasonable built up is um, one way of making sure that whatever guidance comes down from you know governments and organizations, uh, international as well as you know domestic, is implementable and reasonable. And so, and then hopefully by that point in time, you know the people who are participating at the forefront edge are just ready to go. They've done it already. Once it you know we we catch up with them. Um, you know what's being required yeah. so thinking no, forward awesome. and you know making sure that the best practices are adopted and evolved um you know helps i think the whole ecosystem uh, that's great so back to the uh, embedded space and s-bomb how do you get this done right because it's always easy to, to talk about stuff i'm pretty good at talking about stuff too you know but uh, how do we get it operationalized uh well we get it operationalized for the most part in the tools um, I say there's four types of S bombs. I consider them anyhow. One is a source where you basically got a source. You're just summarizing all the source pieces that are there together. What mm -hmm. the licensing is, um, what's a potential pool to build binaries from, things like that. Um, then there is, a, you've been given a binary. You want to do your binary analysis on that. What can I discover about what's actually in there? Because no one's going to tell me what's in there. I need to do my own risk analysis, right? So there's a binary. Uh, yeah, that's why it's pretty tough, right? That's not yeah, it's pretty tough because you're doing you're, you're doing you know forensics and um, detective work for yeah. the most part. 
So I probably have the least trust in that. The one I probably would have more trust in is the one you're doing when you're building. So mm -hmm. I think the operationalizing is every time you do a build, like you run your It's between the source and the binary, right? It's in the middle yep. right there. It's between the sources and the binary. So you have that full traceability of what made it into that final library, which libraries made it into that final executable image. Mm -hmm. um, so the build, so I call that one a build SBOM. And then the fourth type of SBOM is um, sometimes called runtime or deployed, which is what configurations were turned on when this image started running in production for me? Mm -hmm. So this is all part of the configuration side, because quite frankly, if you've configured it a certain way, you may not be vulnerable to issues. Right. Or you could disable all the opposite. You could disable a crypto and, and now now be vulnerable. Vulnerable. Sure. Right. It's, so it's all, yeah, it, it's running too slow. Therefore, I'm going to disable this crypto. Yeah. Maybe not such a good choice. Um, just depends on the situation. So but it's interesting. The source, the source as one you described, right? I never thought of it. Um, funny enough, I, I always thought of the build, you know, the build phase. Um, how is that? I mean, is it just effectively pre-built? So, so it's all scanning the source code and just looking for dependencies, purely looking at the, the Git repo, I guess? Yeah, I'd say it's looking at the sources and it's summarizing the sources that then get used in the build. And so this is part of like when I was talking about the Zephyr and we have the three S-bombs, we have two sources, mm -hmm. one for the Zephyr sources, one for the app sources, and then one for the build. And then the third one is the build. And what the build is, is it says this .o, this .o, this .o made it into this library, and this library, this library, and this .o made it into my elf image that got loaded onto a machine. Mm. Right? And having that traceability for the .o's um, that made it into that final image, and then linking those .o's back to the sources they came from gives you that level of transparency we're going to need. So you need the sources, you need the build S-bombs. Uh, for really getting automation to happen at scale. Otherwise, you're still having a lot of manual there. Like what brought this one home to me personally was when um, the FNET, um, Amnesia 33 came out, right? A couple years ago. Mm -hmm. And Zephyr um, had uh, the right FNET component in it, in its LTS version. However, when you actually look down at the source files, none of the stack that was impacted was actually in the Zephyr binary, in the build, in the Zephyr repo. It was at the source file level we knew that it was clean. But we had no way of signaling this. So we ended up having to put a blog post out to say, hey, you know, <laughs> we're not affected. It's all good. But this is part of the reason I'm also a really big believer in the whole um, concept of vulnerability exploitability exchange or VEX type of information or you know advisories so that we have ways of signaling automatically. When someone's done the analysis, can I share this analysis with someone else? And you know, hey, I've done this analysis on Zephyr. I can put a VEX out saying, we're good. So can you tell people a little bit about VEX, you know, for people that don't know? Sure. Um, VEX is some work that sort of spun out of the NTIS bomb work, which is uh, and it's vulnerability exploitability uh, exchange or expression. I'm, I'm never quite sure what the X stands for sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but the idea is you can, you can say whether or not a vulnerability impacts something or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have a way of summarizing that information. And so um, the CSAF group, um, Common Security Advisory Framework work that OASIS has been doing, they've mm -hmm. been working on, um, they created a VEX profile in conjunction with the NTIA work. Um, and they said this, these, these things can be used to signal whether or not a piece of code is vulnerable or not. And <laughs> so that is um, sort of where it's, uh, been going 
And so building it up um, for having ways that we can automatically share vulnerability information, which happens after the builds, right? After the build of the SBOM. It may happen after you know, you've configured and deployed it too, but um, having the way of saying, uh, we noticed this and how do we start looking and saying whether we're affected or not, having a way of communicating that between multiple parties, um, that's what the VEX stuff is letting you do. So, you know, the common examples being, you know, a company has a product out in the field and they want to tell people, um, you heard this vulnerability on the news over here? You're not affected. We've checked, we've done the checking. As opposed to, yes, we're going to have to go do this update. So having that effective communication is going to help the system scale as well. And do you, do you um, so I guess it's uh, exchange, uh, the last, the last. Thank you. Uh, uh, and do you uh, do you see it used to share publicly the information, or do you see people being able to use it to share just to their customers, or how control is of sharing? I guess completely up to the organization. Okay. What what do you, what do you recommend people? Do well, you, for open source you... projects, I recommend being completely transparent. Right. It's kind okay. of very, uh, for commercial projects that have brought in pieces, um, you know, making sure that responsibility, you know, responsible disclosure happens. And so some of this may be a value added story that they give to their member, you know, to their customers, right? Mm -hmm. that they say, Hey, you know, you're buying support from us. Therefore we will be sending you this type of information. And we don't want to get in the way of their business cases because we need it right. all to work effectively for everyone. What, what what do you tell people that, uh, you know, one of the pushback I, I had when I was pushing uh, companies before the executive order to give us S-bombs was the fact that companies refused to share uh, the S-bomb and the CVs with us, mm -hmm. um, you know, for risk of whatever, you know, they, they felt like was dangerous to them or whatever, you know, kind of putting their head in the sand, hoping for the best, right? Uh, what, what do you tell people to convince them that, uh, you know, participating in, and, and, you know, sharing SBOM is the way, the right way to do business, I guess? Well, I think uh, we had a lot of this sort of discussion in, in the NTIA group, and there's a fact that came, we, we ended up creating. And the best way of explaining this is, you know, the attackers already know this information. They can go and do the right, you know, have the tools to go and look this. Um, an SBOM is effectively a roadmap for the defender. <laughs> To right, figure out what right. you need to do. It's not a roadmap for the attacker. It's a roadmap for the defender to actually be able to figure this out and decide do they need to work on something or not. But for some reason, some people believe no one has access to their their products, right? So it's so closely guarded that uh, the release is. But that that's a pipe dream, right? It's just that's doesn't a pipe dream. Like yeah, as soon as you're running something, someone could put a you know a sniffer on it and look yeah, at it. It could be a malware yeah. getting access to a server. It could be whatever server compromised and people exfiltrating the binaries or whatever it could be. Right. Yeah. So I think we've got a lot of, um, like one of the things I was hearing as a piece of FUD was, oh, you can't do an SBOM for firmware. So this is where something like Zephyr just basically proves you, no, you can't. Right. <laughs> In fact, because we're doing it today, it's possible. For C languages, yes, you can do it. You just put so it. So what, what are they saying is not? Possible. I never heard that one. In fact, oh. uh, wait, before you skip, you know, that was my next question. You're cheating here. Uh, oh. So let's, let's dig into it. <laughs> what, what about firmware? Uh, why, why are people saying it's because of the, the nature of firmware? They're saying it's not yeah. even feasible? Yeah, that's that's what I was hearing a lot of, which is because what, of... What, what, why? why are they, what's the logic behind? I mean, I'm um, sure they, have an, they must have an argument somewhere. <laughs> Um, I, I think it was more along the lines of they just didn't see how to do it. Oh, I see. 
okay? And hey, you know, I'm finding a binary. It doesn't have all these hooks that this package manager would give me. Therefore, how can it be possible? Well, mm -hmm. it's possible because you stick it into the build. And you've got debug information when you're assembling and linking an executable together. You've got yep, the yep. information there. Remember, I started my career off as a compiler geek, okay? Yeah, <laughs> and, that's what you and, and, and so linkers are important to pull all the pieces together, and they've got a lot of this debug information sitting there, and we just need to export it in an effective form, in a common form that people, you know, different tools can use it differently. So they can do it in source, they can do the source, and they can do the build, right? And that's what the Zephyr project is showing right now. And in fact, one of the ways we're showing it is there's actually a dashboard um, that Ant Micro, who has simulators, did. And there's over 300 boards on this dashboard and about five different applications, including one we're using TensorFlow Lite for machine learning, okay? And for anything that's showing build and pass on that dashboard, if you download that image, you could load it onto the hardware and it would run. But if you download the image, or you can on the simulator and run for that matter. It's got three S bombs in it, and it's just mm. happening automatically across that whole space. And that's the level. And they were doing that because they could just you know change a config option and it would just start happening. And so those are all firmware images. They're all alpha images, and they all have S bombs. <laughs> and yeah. so there's you know over a thousand at least plus in that little dashboard that gets rerun every you know gets rebuilt every day or two days or something like that. So that's where automation is key again, and and uh, so the, the 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 project, of course, had to build a bunch of uh, software, I guess, to to end up uh, creating this automation. Did you? Is that accessible to other firmware companies that that would want to use that yeah. to just do their own S bomb? Yeah. So um, the work that yes that was done for the SPX project is in the West um, tool, and it's a, that calls into the CMake infrastructure. So there's been hacks, you know, there's been changes put into the CMake infrastructure. It's just when these options are turned on, it gets generated. Mm. Um, the other place you can look for examples, again, all open source. Um, so you can go to Zephyr repo and look through some of the CMake build information. You, know, you can find some of the hooks there and the pull request that added it in. Uh, other place was like in the Octo project. And so the Octo project, um, all its stuff is open and the recipes and how it basically mines the debug information that are that's happening as part of the builds and compiles to create these uh, this level of detail and relationships. Yeah, and we, we talked uh, you know about Zephyr a lot. Uh, just maybe just to give the the elevator pitch about you know why you guys created it effectively competing uh, to Linux, right? Uh, in a sense somehow a little bit well, right? <laughs> we filled a gap that linux didn't fit it's kind of it how I like it. yeah linux, like i say linux doesn't get smaller than too many and you know we need things it's, that were it's too it's too big right it's, yeah. it's just a size thing it was a size thing and um we sort of you know took lessons from it and, and we couldn't to... we couldn't have fixed linux to make it smaller it, it, it we had to create we something. So this was interesting yeah. i was at lenaro we were trying for several years and um all, and like uh, Nicholas Petra um, is one of these brilliant programmers and, you know, was getting into the compiler hacking, getting into other things. And really, he really just couldn't get below a certain point in time, a certain size. And, you know, it started off something would fit on a floppy. But then there's been use cases over all these years <laughs> that have evolved Linux. And so it gets smaller than about, you know, the last number I heard was about 2 meg. And, you know, you also can say... what's the smallest for Zephyr, I guess? Zephyr, you can get a small... You know, very small image that serve in the tens of K. Oh, wow. Okay. But like I say, if you put a Bluetooth stack, ooh, that's going to add something. If you put on, 
you know, certain crypto algorithms and so forth, mm, that, that, you know, you put on what you need. Yeah, it's modular. Yeah, It's very, very modular, very, very flexible. And there's a lot of components with Zephyr that have already been tested with Zephyr. It's kernel. So mm. it's a system more than just a kernel for the real time. And, and companies, uh, big companies use it now uh, for their IoT devices? Yeah. Um, one example, one of our members in the project is Oticon. And so all of the new generation of hearing aids, for instance, especially the ones with the tinnitus control from Oticon, are mm. all used running Zephyr. And then um, you're also, in fact, um, you're seeing uh, Google will be moving their next generation of Chromebooks for the um, keyboard and mouse control stuff. will be mm. handled with Zephyr. And so they've been public about that. Um, we know there's wind turbines out there with Zephyrs inside the sensors and working with helping the, you know, because energy is a consideration there. Um, so, you know, Vestas has got wind turbines. We've got a variety of other um, options. So there's like, you know, little tags to know where you are location-wise mm -hmm. or you're in proximity. Those are running Zephyr. There's ear, ear tags for wildlife um, from reindeers up in mm. the thing. I know it's running Zephyr. They basically are running Zephyr with a remote modem. And this became economically feasible, which I thought was fascinating because um, for wildlife management, if a wolf takes down a reindeer up there, the government will reimburse the uh, reindeer, like, you know, the, the herder. Right. And so it became worthwhile to put these tags on to know whether or not the, move, the deer are moving or they're stationary. How many are getting, yeah. Yeah. And so, so you get your, your refund. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's different ways of using it, but, you know, for wildlife management and things like that, tagging and like, you know, monitoring, you know, temperature as something tracks through the supply chain is kind of key for certain, you know, vaccines and things like that so you know we've got you know devices out there doing that today so Do you getting... see bigger bigger use like space or automotive stuff or mm -hmm. oh yeah. yeah um there's a lot of interest in using zephyr for some of the you know sensor management and in fact one of the projects we're working on in lisa is creating a system where we have zephyr a hypervisor and linux uh all working on an automotive application for monitoring a sensor and then still having some of the control stuff and so we're prototyping how we can look at the system and then the, do the safety analysis on that. And we're using these components I, together. Uh, how, how is that funded, I guess, this project? Uh, the ELISA project is funded by our members. Um, so you can join in, but anyone can join in. So you don't need to be a member, but it helps to fund the infrastructure um, if people are members. The same way with the Zephyr project. Anyone can see the code, source code, can contribute upstream, whatever. But um, Thanks to our members, we're able to provide the infrastructure for the testing, the CI loops, resources in that way. So, like, you know, we've mm -hmm. got like Bluetooth testing is something you want to do for Zephyr. And so there's people that are, you know, there's organizations contracted to do our testing for Bluetooth because it's got a lot of specialized equipment. And so the project pays for that to keep it up to date. And, you know, these and, and you talked about the, uh, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, the, the, the firmware uh, CMake kind of, change you had to make to generate the uh you know the the s-bomb is that upstream back to cmake yeah. or is that a uh it's within the zephyr project we haven't had a you know we, we've not had good discussions with this like i said we haven't reached out and hooked into the cmake people and see if they want to pick some of this stuff up and adapt it to more general um i'd certainly so that could see a lot of other use cases right that, that, yeah. could, that could be that could yeah. be almost its own project <laughs> 
Well, I, you know, I, and certainly anyone who's ever interested in talking about this, please reach out and, you know, happy to discuss this with anyone that's sort of working on these, some of these upstream projects and wants to help generate this stuff automatically. Love to have that discussion and how we can do it with the SPDX format. In particular. Yeah. Because it creates a lot of headache, I guess, for you guys to have to, have to maintain this um, with, you know, CMake also doing their own releases and so being... It's it's pretty it's pretty lightweight on top of the CMake it's stuff. Yeah. It's pretty lightweight. It's it's you know it's it's just literally exporting a few things and printing some things that weren't there before. And so right, you're looking right. at values, and then you know if they change things dramatically, yeah, it might change. But you know, getting into the CMake infrastructure is definitely something to you know look at, as well as all the package managers that are out there, making sure that they're generating this stuff in a way that other tools can consume it. So you mentioned uh, Open Chain, right? Uh, what what is it, and uh, how does that relate to uh, SPDX? Sure. Well, Open Chain is an ISO standard, um, and it started from community grassroots effort, like SPDX did. And what it is is the processes. So here's how um, I've got software coming into my organization, and what should I expect from the person who's giving me the software? And you know, are the people trained to understand the open source part of it? Are they trained to you know generate an SBOM? Um, this is a set of processes, and it's uh, you can self you can do a self assessment. They've got free self assessment to whether or not you're compliant or not. Um, so anyone can go and look at the questions and see how they answer, or you can ask some third party audits you too. Um, that option is out there. Um, but OpenChain is it's a very short standard. It's about 10 pages, and it just sort of says these are the processes. But it's also got a lot of rich training material on how to work with open source, how to do the compliance stuff properly. And that's all free. And so the OpenChain project um, has been adopted pretty much worldwide at this point in time. Um, a lot of the major companies are um, already compliant or quietly working behind the scenes to become compliant with it. And so it became uh, an ISO standard in 2020. And um, that, you know, and if you go to the website for OpenChain, you can see all the companies that are compliant with it right now and should be able to provide the evidence you're looking for if you work with them because they know how to work with open source properly. And they've got a way of attesting to that. Now, when they generate an SBOM, it needs some way to communicate that information. That's where SPDX comes in. It's a, a language or a format to generate out that bill of materials. And underlying SPDX, there's actually a data model. So there's a lot of rigor behind the specification. And what that data model lets us do is generate things out in JSON, in XML. It's in not just XML, right? Thank yeah, God. Not just XML, and in tag value, and quite frankly, spreadsheets. We can right. actually put data into the spreadsheet. We need it in Excel. And there's, and there's like the free tools up there. And, um, you know, I know a lot of lawyers that prefer to see summaries of information in spreadsheets. And so it's pretty easy to do that for them too. Um, and so these are the sort of the formats that are there. Um, it's easy enough to add another format. You just need someone who's really is motivated to do the work of, um, you know, serializing the model into that format. Uh, but we've got like I say, we've got the JSON, and that tends to be fairly good for interacting with a lot of the other ecosystems. And um, we're also evolving this spec. So we started with the 2.2. NTIA's, um, you know, the, the 
the document put out by NTAA as to what an SBOM is, recognizes the SPDX22 is a valid SBOM format, and we can describe what we need to do there. We can describe the known unknowns. We can describe, you know, the relationships. In fact, SPX is much richer in terms of some of the relationships than that <laughs> was calling for. Um, and so we've got this way of communicating this type of information. And um, it's a language, effectively. And so open chain is looking for an SBOM. Uh, SPDX is a way of satisfying that SBOM and generating that SBOM and sharing it. Um, so an SPDX is, we put it out under ISO. So it's an ISO standard as well. Um, and we went through the whole effort of doing the internationalization um, and making sure that it was coherent for um, that. So we've got, it's a formal ISO standard, but it's also a public ISO standard. So you don't, you can go to the ISO site, you can find SPDX there, and you can, there's a link to the public site. So you can go and download it without spending money. Because we felt that that was really important for the um, open source community. So both OpenChain and SPDX are public standards so that they are available and the open source community does not need to, you know, I'm a hobbyist, okay? I don't really want to spend $5,000 to actually look at a safety standard. On the other hand, right now I have no choice. <laughs> and mm -hmm. this is a barrier for safety and security when you don't have these public standards available. Right. And, you know, the, these things need to change over time. And it needs to be, you know, it needs to be effective and economic, but we need to, if we want the open source community to adopt these things, they need to be accessible to the community in some fashion. And so one of the, you know, the paywall barrier is a factor for the standards in some ways. And that's one of the things we made sure for both OpenChain and SPDX we didn't have. The other thing too is we in both community in both um, projects we have active communities that are continuing to evolve um, the specifications. There's work going on in OpenChain for more security related information and how to work with security processes. Um, and in SPDX, we just finished putting out the two three release of SPDX that has uh, a new whole new annex on how to handle security cases mm. and using SPDX to handle the security cases. So. We're continuing to serve, evolve it, and you know we added things to interoperate with the Cyclone DX spec, we and you know SWID, so forth. So we're trying, you know, continuing to try to make it a good piece of glue to put things together. And so 3.0 is our next release for SPDX, um, and you've been hearing me talk about some of the new profiles that will be showing up there. So maybe in a year's time, I can come back on and tell you all about the profiles and how they're being used. <laughs> yeah, it'll be great. Uh, in fact, tell us a little bit about you know. The difference between uh, Cyclone DX and SPDX, and who is going to win the the fight, or is there going to be someone, or both of them will be winning, and and everybody will be happy, or do we need do we need one to win, or is, does it matter, and and what's the difference really uh, between the two? Um, I think the key difference between them is um, Cyclone DX is very much focused at just the component level and for the build flow, and SPDX can handle those, but it also handles a wider range of use cases down to the source level, or quite frankly, into the snippet level. How many how many times have you heard of a vulnerability that's been copied off of one of those public forum into someone's code base? <laughs> and, you know, well, it was happening for licensing reasons anyhow, but if you know that this snippet has been copied from Reddit over to here, and you want to annotate it, you have a way of doing it in SPDX. And so you can actually pattern match this stuff and look for it from that perspective. So, um, you know, and going back down to that source level is something that we. So SPDX is 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 just better. Well, I'm biased. 
Okay. Well, I have to admit it, but we well, did. I, I kind of agree, but you're, you're biased like me, but I mean, that's yeah. okay. We, we actually did, we, we, we went to the effort of taking it to being an ISO standard and going through the overhead of doing that and the public yeah. review. So that has to say something, I think. That's a nightmare. That's a nightmare, right? That's uh, that's a lot of work. Yeah. And so we've been, you know, we're continuing to evolve it though. And uh, we are not perfect in many ways. There's a lot of interesting use cases that I think Cyclone DX is an interesting way of handling and we'll probably and you know, Cyclone DX pushed, it's pushed by, by a company, right? It's, it's not a foundation, or oh, I forgot who is behind yeah, well, the. So I think ServiceNow is the main one behind Cyclone DX, as well as I think Sonotype. I think those are the two big companies there behind it. However, it's part of the OWASP Foundation. So it's part of a foundation. It's got governance. So, you know, uh, interacting and interoperability um, is one of the things we are trying to do between the two projects, is making sure well, that. Why, why do we even need two? Why can't we convince everybody to just do one? They're just egos or silos or whatever. Like it's like DoD, which is not invented here. Concept things. Yeah, I think people want to innovate in their own way, and yeah, you can learn more from having some competition than having none. I yeah, I mean it doesn't hurt to have some some competition, right? Yeah, that's good. I think, I think it makes us all move faster. So it's, yeah. it's like I say they like I say they've got some really smart people in the Cyclone DX community, and I think they've got some great ideas and. I think we've got some good ideas on the SPDX side too. So I think we'll just continue to, you know, bounce off of each other and innovate for a while. Yeah, without. So a couple of questions from the public before we let you go, because we, we've been abusing of your time. But uh, there's been a there's been a, a lot of great information that you gave us today. So we're pretty excited. Um, you mentioned at some point, you know, the the Boeing thing and the fact that they're creating some type of group, right? Um, CBDA is working for Microsoft, but she's wondering. If she could join, without the you know, if the company is already a member, already getting engaged, can can yeah. can they also just join? And how uh, to do yeah. that? They can. They can. Like I could say, as long as you know, um, Microsoft is a very active member, actually, of both SPDX yeah. and OpenChain. And um, so I think uh, if if you know if she wants to, we'd welcome all all contributors are definitely welcome. If she wants to talk to someone inside Microsoft first. I yeah. encourage her to talk to like William Bartholomew, who's handling the core um, for SPX3, and then Adrian, who's doing a lot of work with the defects. So there's people inside Microsoft you could talk to who are very active and engaged and can help them find the best path. Um, but you know, if your company isn't a member of the Linux Foundation or of one of these projects, please join us too. It's um, yeah. one of, the, one of the, the reasons we sort of did our governance structure the way we did is. You'll notice uh, when I was at Freescale, we started it. I kept working mm -hmm. on it while I was at Ubuntu. I kept working on it while I was at Lenaro, and I kept working on it at the LF. This was not started yeah. at the LF. This is all done volunteer from the community. Yeah, it's Just not tied to your job. It's not tied to the job, exactly. So it's very much open community, and anyone is welcome to just join in the meetings and um, join on the mail list. The mail lists are open, too. Yeah. Are you still? Do you still do that mailing list? Is it still how life works in the... No, no chat, no Slack, no. Oh, is it is it moving to like more modern, I guess, uh, options? <laughs> well, there are Slacks and chats and things like that, and we've got some. But I think a lot of the um, it's still mailing list. Huh? It's still well, hardcore. We still have hardcore mailing lists. We also are doing a lot of work in our GitHub repos these days. Yeah. So the specification. There's a lot of discussion back and forth on some of the pull requests, so you can find things it's out. On the pull, so you have to go into pull requests. Yeah, that makes it fun. We've got Gitter as well. We do, tend to do a lot of work with our Google Summer of Code students there. Mm. And so people are working on tooling. That tends to be very effective. But 
sometimes when you're actually having um, you know those deeper conversations, you want to be able to have the historical context very much there. And you don't want it to suddenly disappear when you see the you know ten thousand messages on Slack. Um, yeah. What the free services provides right. us. So we've, we've, we're still in. Like I said, we've got ten years of mail history, and it's still been serving us <laughs> reasonably well. <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, so Adam was asking, uh, what do you see as the best option for device identity uh, now in the future? Is it is it still X509 certs uh, for the device identity piece? Or? Um, I think that's a big open question. There's a lot of discussion going on as to what should be um, people should be doing for identity. Um, I'm going to say that's work in progress and go join in the groups and start the discussions there. Because I don't know. But, what but, but right now, is it the most used option? I guess. Um. Well, I'm not an expert on the devices. Okay. Yeah. When when we're actually talking about devices to products, I know X509 is very popular, but I don't feel comfortable being explicit as to what is the most here right now. Right. Um. If there's other people I could point you to that I think would. Do no, that's great. No, that's great. Stuff. I can tell you in DoD for sure that uh, the most used today is definitely X509 uh, device identities. I've uh, I've yet to see um, anything much else other than having no identity, <laughs> which is you know not great. So that makes sense. Um, so like always, what we do is I'm gonna you know in a second give you the last words, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna tell the everybody who is gonna come on the show next for next week. And uh, so before. I give you the uh, the floor for the final uh, goodbyes. Uh, I'm gonna go now and, and remind everybody that next Tuesday we're gonna have uh, CJ uh, Yunus from the Space Force, uh, who has a, a pretty amazing background. He was a Marine, he was a federal agent, <laughs> and then now he's you know civilian uh, working. And he, he was at uh, you know the uh, New Mexico uh, DHS to work on the. A critical infrastructure and you know it's doing a lot on the on the uh, supply chain risks and of course uh uh is is he has such a pretty amazing breadth of of knowledge uh between the 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 physical the, the virtual and the, the kind of the supply chain and um very concerning uh threats we're seeing uh, particularly after what happened in ukraine but but also covid and and of course potentially taiwan so it's going to be a fun, fun episode. So uh, don't miss it next Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern. And now uh, over to you for the last one. Well, of course, I wanted to thank you uh, for joining us. It was amazing. Uh, I know we uh, we took a lot of your time, but I think uh, with the number of people that uh, learned today, I think it was uh, your time was well spent. So, Well, thank you very much and very much enjoyed being here and the excellent questions. Um, I guess the last thing I'll just sort of say is if people are interested in aerospace, I would encourage you to sort of catch um, the Elisa is going to be having a summit. It's free to join uh, virtually. And um, if you're interested in the aerospace area, I'd encourage people to uh, check out um, the formation of that group and see if that's something you're interested in participating in. Again, you don't need to be a member to uh, join, but it uh, certainly is always appreciated. So. Um, these projects are all open source and they're all open communities. So um, encourage people to, if, this, if things sound interesting, just please reach out. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. You stay safe and please keep up the great work to make sure that our kids have a fighting chance at winning against China 20 years from now. Stay safe. See you next week.